0: Amen. That is good stuff. We're going to be talking this morning, as we always do, about Jesus our Savior and how because of how He stood, we can now stand. I want to encourage you and invite you to go ahead and and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting at verse 17 here in just a moment. While you're turning there, I have a few things just to uh, let you know about, remind you about. Um, A couple things that didn't get announced, and I was asked to, to mention them and make sure It's kind of strange for me to get up, and this is the first time I talk to you all morning um, for a lot of y'all, because Casey's doing the announcements now, and that's good. Um, But it's kind of strange for me. Uh, Tonight, youth Bible study happens at the youth building at 5 o'clock, so that's for all middle school and high schoolers. Cornerstones is for all elementary age kids, and that is at 5 o'clock also in the youth building. That is in the upstairs portion. And tonight, also, we're going to be starting something uh, unique uh, tonight for our evening service. And something I've maybe mentioned, I don't know if I've mentioned it here, but I've mentioned it to our uh, Sunday night crew uh, who come. And I hope that you could become part of that Sunday night crew. We don't have a ton who come, but we'd like to see that service grow and become something um, that, that valuable stuff is happening there, I believe. And so I hope that you'll consider coming out to it. Um, tonight, what we're starting is a documentary. And so you say, a documentary at a Bible study. And so this documentary is put out by a ministry called Founders' Ministry. And Founders' Ministry um, is, is a southern, it's not part of the SBC, it's not like an SBC entity, but it's one that is made up of pastors and churches that are within the Southern Baptist Convention. And what this documentary is exploring is the idea that there's only one standard by which we judge our ministry, judge our ideas, judge the things that we do, and that is God's Word. What we see happening, unfortunately, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, I'm afraid to say and I hate to say, is that there are some godless ideologies that are creeping in and that are um, trying to be nestled up beside God's word and around God's word and say that it's right below God. It's it's not God's word's above it, but it's still something good. Well, a lot of these ideologies are ones that have come from uh, the world, that have come from godless men who have put these ideas together, um, ideas dealing with things like Marxism and the implications of it. And so I know that maybe for some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? I hope that you'll come and, and find out um, just in what ways there are ideas that may be infiltrating the SBC and, and evangelical Christianity as a whole that I hope and I, and I pray that the Lord is causing people to see and understand and say, maybe this isn't good. So come check that out tonight. We're going to be doing that over the next few weeks, um, Lord willing, depending on my, my baby situation, um, which could be any day now. The baby is due on Friday. But so we'll be watching it for 35, 40 minutes and discussing for a little bit at the end. In February, we're starting the Pilgrim's Progress, and we're going to do, be doing a study through the book um, of the Pilgrim's Progress. It is the, it is the in, in the English-speaking world, the second... Um, best-selling book behind the Bible historically. It is one that goes through as a story and an allegory of what it means to follow Jesus and all, all the good things and all the bad things. And it's a way of helping us kind of um, ha- have ways of thinking about when, when Christian, the main character, goes through this, that's kind of like what I was going through uh, in this certain trial. And so we're going to be starting that in February. Um, we will, I'll be letting you know more about that, but I want you to be aware of it. <coughs> A few other things to make you aware of is this. There, there's a few folks, and if I'm missing anyone, I'm sorry. These are the three people that I was asked to mention this morning. Um, there are three folks who are sick in our congregation that we want to be um, aware of. I asked about Brandy Massey, who is Jane McGee's daughter. She had emergency back surgery last night, and it seems as though she has gotten through that and that she is recovering now, and things seem to be looking up for her. Um, Louise McFalls is, fell last week and she's having some issues with her back and with her hip. Um, there was in her spine a, a compression fracture. But she's having some pain in her right hip, and so just be praying for her that they'll figure out what they need to do for her in regards to that. And then uh, finally, Ellen Jones, and if you don't know, maybe you know SE, Ellen hasn't been able to be around as much um, just due to her health over the past couple years, but maybe you know SE. Ellen is His wife. She is in the hospital currently with pneumonia and flu. She's getting some breathing treatment at night. So be be praying for her. Those two together, um, on top of the fact that just her health is kind of compromised and her age um, have the potential to, though they might not be dangerous for us to have pneumonia and have flu for her, it is something that's potentially dangerous. So we want to be praying for uh, those three folks and and everyone in our congregation who is currently uh, going through health issues. Now to the sermon. So all kinds of introduction there. To the sermon now. Um, Before we get to our scripture, uh, I want to just talk to you about maybe something that you've come across, especially if you're in law enforcement or if you watch enough courtroom dramas or watch enough cop shows. Um, And it's it's this idea in the Latin. um, Ignorantia juris non excusat. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. (laughs) When we put that in English, it means... Uh, it's the basic idea that ignorance of the law is no excuse. Maybe you've heard that one, right? Just because you don't know that something was against the law doesn't mean you're off the hook for it, right? We have law enforcement folks, right? Yes, okay. Um, if you murder someone, and you say, my goodness, I didn't know I couldn't murder people. Um, what is that judge going to say to you? <laughs> I don't know why you didn't know it, was against the, it wasn't against the law, or was against the law, but it is, man. And so, sorry, um, you're going to jail, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, and he was an interesting man who went from a slave trader to a man who was changed by the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ to a man who who was a great force in England for the gospel. He said this, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most religious mistakes. This is the root of self-righteousness. The grand reason why the gospel of Christ is no more regarded and the cause of that uncertainty and inconsistency of many who, though they profess themselves teachers, understand not what they say, nor whereof they affirm. What does that mean? That means this. Because we don't understand how we relate to God's law as New Testament Christians, There is so much of our, all of our religious mistakes, not all, most of our religious mistakes are rooted in that place. Because there is great confusion today in evangelicalism, in Christianity as a whole, in Baptist life, where we don't understand what is is our relationship to the law. I've done this a few times with people when I'm in a group of folks, and for some reason it comes up, And I'm a pastor, and I think about things like this. And so I say, how many of you feel like real confident you know what our relationship to the law is now as New Testament Christians? And everybody's like, uh, you know, for some of us, we hear that all of it's gone, right? We probably heard some preaching and teaching that says all of it's gone, right? For some folks, you maybe heard that all of it is still in play. There are lots of folks out there professing themselves to be teachers, and they have no clue what they're talking about when it comes to this. Now, what I want to tell you this morning is this, as one who God has put here to teach his word, I want to say that I don't, I'm not convinced that I'm just, you know, have everything figured out ever, but what I have aimed to do is look at what God's word says. Look at what Baptists have said and believed historically, (coughs) because for me, I do not want to be one who has no clue what he's talking about. There are famous pastors, folks who are on television, folks who are, um, well, who are are read much of and listened to, folks that I used to listen to a bunch, one, and I won't drop his name today, but who said of the Old Testament and our relationship to it, the Christians actually need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, and that's what the New Testament was all about, the unhitching of Christianity, of following God and making it separate from the Old Testament. Maybe there's good principles there, like, hey, you know... um, You know, maybe be like David or don't be like David in this instance, maybe good moral principles. But this person has said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and its laws and regulations, is essentially the implication there, right? I want us to read what God's Word says about this and to understand as a church that for us, we need to come to some kind of conclusion and conviction on what our relationship to God's law is. Because for me as a pastor, I do not want to be one who, in my teaching of this church and this congregation, has no clue what I'm talking about. To profess to be a teacher myself and not know what I say or what I affirm. I don't want us as Christians to be ignorant on one of the most important things in God's Word. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. We're continuing the Sermon on the Mount after a break for Advent. And Jesus, picking up after talking about being the light of the world, says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the inerrant, infallible, and all-sufficient word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we take on such a heavy topic this morning, we know that we can only make sense of it and only trudge through it by the power of your Holy Spirit working in me to proclaim it and working in our own hearts and minds to understand it. Lord, would you give us through your Spirit a right understanding of our relationship to your law, of what it means that you came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Lord, for us, if if we have heard and maybe even believed and taught ourselves uh, things about this topic, Lord, that have not lined up with what you were saying here in your word. Lord, would you convict us and lead us into the right way of thinking, believing, and doing? And Lord, would you empower me by your Spirit to, to say only what you would have me say this morning? Maybe for our good and maybe for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a text, 17 through 20, that I'm going to break up into two sermons, okay? We're going to be looking at all of it in both sermons, but we're going to be looking at different aspects of it in those two sermons. Our main idea for this first sermon is going to be this, that Christ fulfills the law for us because we can't. Christ fulfills the law for you and for me because we have no ability in ourselves to do it. We might get something right here and there. But at the end of the day, you cannot fulfill God's perfect law, at least under certain circumstances. What we'll see next week, or if a baby comes in a few weeks, is that Christ fulfills the law so that you can. So he fills the law because you can't. But what that's going to lead to is him fulfilling the law and allowing you to be able to do it so that you can actually do it you say, well, how does that work? If we can't, then how can we? And we'll talk about that in the next sermon. But for us, we want to see how Christ fulfills. Next week, what we're really going to be seeing is how he does not abolish it. By fulfilling it, he is not saying that it is done away with forever. It is still good and right. But our setting here is this. So it's the Sermon on the Mount. You probably remember a lot of this. We've not been out of the Sermon on the Mount for too long. But he is teaching on what it means to be members to be citizens of the kingdom of God he gives the characteristics of those kingdom members those who are poor in spirit they mourn over their sin they're meek they hunger and thirst for righteousness they're merciful they're pure in heart they're peacemakers and they're persecuted those are all those beatitudes and he says that we're going to be persecuted but we should rejoice and be glad because the same thing happened to the prophets who are before us And then he says this. He says, You are the salt of the earth. If you are part of my kingdom, if you are citizens of my kingdom, you're the salt of the earth. He also says, You're the light of the world. Both of those instances, he's not saying you are to be the salt, not that you are to be the light, but that by the nature of who you are, if you are truly in Christ, that is your role. He finishes up by saying this in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So for them, they hear this idea of good works. and Probably in their minds they start thinking, okay, so what does this mean for me? And there's probably two groups of people, at least, in that crowd. There are the folks who say good works, so what does that mean for me? And there are the folks who say, good works, I got that. And those folks, he talks about them there in verse 20, are the who? The Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were interesting folks because, here's the deal, Israel had an interesting history. God brought them out of Egypt and he made this covenant with them. And he says, you are my people, I am your God, here is my law, do it and live. Do it and be blessed. But if you don't do it, their curses for you. This was, in some ways, what we'd call a covenant of works. You're going to do this and be blessed? If you don't do it, you're cursed. And we see that play out because as God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, keep going after and worshiping these other false gods, the Baals, right? Baal was, was a big one. And they kept worshiping these false gods. What eventually happened to them? They get captive. They're taken captive into slavery to Babylon and Assyria. And after years and years and centuries of struggling with idol worship, they come back finally from being enslaved. And they say, you know what? Worshiping other gods is not good and not following the law is not good. We're going to quit that. And so they quit it. But instead of worshiping idols, worshiping false gods, they now instead started to worship idols righteousness. Not God's righteousness and holiness, but their own. And out of these came folks, groups of people like the Pharisees, who for them, they looked at all these commands and they even added on to them. They see the commands of God, not just the 10 commandments that he gives. We're going to talk about that in a minute. God's moral law, not just the ceremonial and civil laws, we're going to talk about those categories in a too. But they would add to them because 600-some-odd commands are not enough, right? And they said, we need more. And there was pride found in the fact that we are making a load that is heavier to bear, and we think everyone else should bear it with us. And you're wrong if you don't bear this heavy load. And look at us how good we bear this load of these extra commands. Can you imagine living like that? Now, unfortunately, on the other side now, there are so many Christians today who we have God's commands and we say, yeah, I know there are like a few commands, but really and truly, um, do I really have to follow them? So we have two polar opposite sides. The Pharisees, their interest has peaked because now they're saying, aha, the law, see, I'm good at this. And then there are folks who are probably saying, following the law, it's not going to pass away. I thought Jesus was doing something different How am I supposed to do these good works and let my light shine before men? So Jesus starts off and he says, I don't come to abolish the law. There are probably folks who are struggling with his teaching. And they're going to struggle with his teaching. Because it seems that he's doing things that are contrary to what their understanding of the law is. It's contrary to the commandments they've added to God's law. And so they say, is he abolishing it? Is he getting rid of it? But he says this, I didn't come to abolish it. Either the law or the prophets. But I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. So we're going to take these, we're actually going to to do prophets first, and then law. Okay, he says law and prophets. When we talk about the law and the prophets, this is a way of talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Okay? The entirety of the Old Testament. He says, I'm here to fulfill it, to make you see it in its fullness. There there is something there where it's not filled up all the way, I am going to fulfill it. So Christ comes, and he fulfills, first of all, the prophets. He is saying that God's word that came before him was true and right, and he says, and I am proving it out to be true and right. So how does he fulfill the prophets? Well, there's all these prophecies about Jesus that came before him. The very first one, the fancy term is the proto-evangelium. That means the first gospel, right? Proto meaning first, evangelium, gospel. It's the first gospel. It's Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned and the curse God puts the curse on them. He says, but the seed of the woman's going to come one day. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent will bruise his heel. From the very beginning, from the moment sin enters the world, God gives the promise of his good news that I'm making away. That promise goes on throughout. And we could spend hours here if I went through all of them, but I'm going to hit the high points. He fulfills the, pro- the prophet saying the seed of the woman's going to come. He fulfills the promise that Abraham and his seed his family, his line is going to bless the entire earth. That's what Jesus does when he comes. He fulfills the the prophetic promise to David that says that a king is coming in his own line who's going to be a better king than David ever thought about being. He fulfills the prophetic words of those like Isaiah who talk about the suffering servant who is coming. And all these promises in the Old Testament find their yes and their amen in Christ. Luke 24 tells us of a couple places where this happens. We just have the references on today. These are longer passages, and i got a bunch of them, okay? So if you want to write them down, you can look at them later. I'm going to keep moving. I'm not going to wait to, to, for the pages to stop rustling, okay? But you can turn there if you'd like to. Luke's pretty close to Matthew. 24, verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He is talking to believers who are struggling with the fact that he died. This Messiah died. He shows up on the road to this other town, and they're walking into this other town, and they're saying, how could he have died? And for some reason, they don't recognize him. They don't, they don't understand. Like they, they, He's in his glorified body, and I, I guess he looks different. But he says, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus shows up and says, listen, you think that everything's over, but everything's just beginning because God made a promise through his prophets. And he told you that I'm going to come and I'm going to suffer. But you didn't understand this. Everything is about me in the Old Testament. The bad, the suffering, and the glory. Later in the same chapter, starting in 44, it says, he is sitting down to eat with his disciples. And it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, "Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in all His name, or in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." Christ continually confirms the truth that He is the coming Messiah. So, where these prophe- prophecies seem like they were waiting and were waiting, and it's not full, He comes and He says, "I have fulfilled." So He fulfills prophets and their prophecy but he does something that, that I really think is his point here and what we're going to zoom in on he says also that I've come to not abolish them but to fulfill them not just the prophets but the law now he goes on and he talks about the law here through verse 20 so we're going to see here how Christ fulfills the law now this is the part where for a lot of us we get concerned confused Because some people say the law has totally passed away. The only law, some folks say, that remains is what we call the law of Christ, which is to love like Christ loved. Now, whenever this baby comes, Casey, in God's providence, is going to be preaching a sermon about the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's wanted to do that way before we knew that this was going to be syncing up in this way. Okay, so you're going to get it from all sides. Um, But so there's this idea of loving the way God loves, and that's the fullness of the law. If I can say that I'm loving like Jesus loved, then I'm fulfilling the law. That's partially true, but here's the deal. How did Christ love? It was within the bounds of God's revealed law. There's some folks that say the law has totally passed away. We just have the rule of love now. There's some folks who say the entirety of the law still remains, and we are bound forever to it. And then there's something in the middle, which I would say is the biblical perspective. See, historic Baptist teaching, and I think the Bible itself teaches, that there are three parts to the law that we should be concerned about. Three parts. For a lot of us, we get confused on this because some folks say, um, they, they hear Christianity, evangelical Christianity, talking about things like, they say, oh, yeah, well, if you think homosexuality is a sin, why are you wearing mixed fabric? Has anybody ever heard that argument before? Or why do you eat shellfish? right, if you think this is a sin. Anybody ever heard that, ever? Yeah. Okay, so that is an argument that we hear, right, and I've heard before in conversations with people, and they say, well, if you think this is a sin and that's a sin, why do you still wear mixed fabric, right? And I say, what's that shirt you're wearing? And I'm like, I don't know, it's cotton and polyester. And they're like, you're breaking the law. What we don't understand and what we've lost, and if we went back and looked at the Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, um, which is that was the confession that all the churches were holding to, or, or a, a version of it called the Charleston Confession or Philadelphia Confession, a, a version of it was what every single Southern Baptist church believed. All those churches that came together in 1845 to begin the convention believed this. For a lot of us, we've never heard this before. So there's three parts of the law that we should be concerned about. And for us, we say, yeah, but where does the Bible actually say there's three parts of the law, right? That's a good question. You probably can't think of it anywhere um for us we have to treat this kind of like we treat the trinity okay does the trinity show up in scripture like the word trinity show up anywhere in scripture no okay is the trinity still just, is the trinity a thing yes okay we know just because the doctrine is never announced in a way that says this is the trinity and here's how you spell it out we know that we can reasonably infer that doctrine from scripture in the same way, we can reasonably infer this doctrine from Scripture, that God's law exists in three parts. And there is one part of it that is eternal for us today, and it has been forever. And we were held to it, not to be made righteous, but out of loving obedience. So those three parts are this, God's moral law, first of all. God has a law that is moral. And that moral law is summed up in the Ten Commands. And I say, some, it is the Ten Commands. The Ten Commands, if we go and we look at them, have existed before Christ, or before they were given on Mount Sinai, right? Think about it. Were they supposed to be, were, you can think about instances in times where before Sinai happened, before Exodus 20, where worshiping idols would not have pleased God, right? There are times where they honored the Sabbath day, right? And the Sabbath is they actually put down in creation, where God rested on the seventh day. We see the consequences of Abraham lying, saying that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. We see the consequences of the potential for adultery whenever... The Pharaoh of Egypt took Sarah and wanted to make her his wife whenever she was already married to Abraham. We see the Ten Commandments and for them, they existed. They didn't just start happening where all of a sudden it's bad to have an idol at the moment that the Ten Commandments come down on Mount Sinai. But instead, they are eternal commands of God that flow out of His character and nature and have existed eternally. They always have and they always will. Now, That's the Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law. And Christ comes and he fulfills these Ten Commandments perfectly. He taught also, and he's going to be teaching, that there is actually much more to them. He's going to go on and we're going to see. If you look down and if you're in a a Bible that has paragraphs, every paragraph following this section, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, verse 21, right? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You've heard it said of those of old, you shouldn't swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You've heard it said, and he goes on through this law. He's going to teach us, though, that there is so much more to the law than just the outer doing or not doing of them but he's going to teach us that the intent is so much more and when christ comes he comes and he fulfills god's moral law there was none that he broke and so we have the ten commandments and he comes and he fulfills those perfectly never lies right never commits adultery never covets we see all of that and we see that he fulfills the moral law of god now, on top of that, he fulfills the civil law. Now, the civil, and we're going to go into these a little bit more next time and talk about well, what does this mean for you? Do I follow the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law? You're going to get some hints at it today, but we're going to go in-depth next sermon. But he also follows what we call the civil law. Now, the civil law was the extension of the moral law for national Israel. There are these concepts and these ideas that whenever someone wrongs you in some way, here's the legal procedure you go through, okay? These are the civil laws for national Israel. But guess what God's new covenant people are not? National Israel. God says that he has taken, and he 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 explains in Romans that there is one people. There are those who are part of national Israel who have been cut off. And then there are folks who are outside of national Israel who have been grafted in showing that it has nothing to do with birth. It has nothing to do with the blood running through your veins. It has everything to do with the Spirit bringing you to life and you being adopted into the family of God. So for us, we no longer exist as a nation state. God's people is no longer a nation state. So the civil law is something that for us now today is not in effect. But Christ, even so, fulfilled it perfectly. Finally, we have the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was the law that has to do with things like cleanliness, right? That had to do with things like sacrifices. And God fulfill, or Christ fulfills the ceremonial law in a different way. He always does what he needs to do. He, he helps them understand that maybe your idea of cleanness is not what it should be. Right? But he comes and he fulfills the ceremonial law in the sense of it being about sacrifices. Whenever Paul looks back on the idea of the sacrifices, in Colossians 2.17, he says of these things, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, we look at the ceremonial law, the idea that there are sacrifices to be made. There are ritual purifications to be done whenever you become unclean for whatever reason. And God gave those as a shadow of the things to come. They are the same shape, but they are not the substance. They are not the fullness. Christ is the fullness of those things. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there are a, remi- a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible with the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, there is a ceremonial law that's given, and it is not the fullness. It is a picture of the good things to come. It is a shadow, but Christ is the substance, because those animals could never, ever take away all of your sin. They could only deal with them for a year. Only the perfect blood of Christ could handle it fully forever. So, Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ comes, and he is not coming to abolish the law by any means. He's not coming to say, You doofuses, y'all just mess this up. He is saying that to some folks. He is saying that to the Pharisees who have added and added and added all of these things to the law. But if he came and said, listen, you guys have been following the law, you've been doing this Ten Commandments thing, you've been making these sacrifices, and you were wrong, what he would be inherently saying is that he was wrong. Because he, as part of the Godhead, one member of the Trinity, inspired those laws. And it would him be showing up and saying, hey, so um, I know I said that a few thousand years ago, but I changed my mind. So here's how you get saved now. But that is not how our God works. He comes and he fulfills the moral and civil law. The civil law being an extension of that moral law. He comes and he fulfills those. And he lives a life that is perfect, sinless. And because of that, he is now the perfect sacrifice. He is now the one, that true lamb of God who comes and is spotless. Who can really actually fulfill the ceremonial law. Who can actually be the sacrifice for sin. Our God is a God who keeps his law. There's a, another famous pastor um, from Charlotte. Um, and he, he, he one time, and you can find it on YouTube, just look up God Broke the Law. And he talks about the fact, he says that God broke the law in order to save you. And his whole point is, you know, if, if your kid's hurt, you know, something happens, they break an arm, you throw them in the car and you rush to the hospital. You don't care if you're breaking the speed limit, Right? And that may be true from a human perspective. We don't care we're bringing this people in. i got to get my kid to the hospital. There's something wrong with them. And he goes on to say that God broke the law to, be, to give you a relationship with him. And I want you to understand something, church. That is blasphemy and rank heresy. It is. God has not ever broken his law. Instead, he comes and he fulfills it. He keeps it perfectly because you cannot, and you haven't, and you never will, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, me included, every single day in thought, word, and deed, we sin. We don't do the things we should do. We do the things we shouldn't do. But Christ comes, and he fulfills the moral law. He loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves neighbor as self. He does all of these things perfectly. He makes himself the perfect lamb of God. Spotless and pure, so that he can go. And on the cross, he dies for your sin once and for all. In light of all this, this is one of those things, this is, this is a big and heavy topic. But I hope that you will think about it. And if you need to, go back and listen to the sermon. And if you need to, come and talk to me. And if you need to, I can give you, I left it in my bag, but there's a great book on this topic that I think is just perfect for, um, for an introduction to this called the, the Law and Gospel by a guy named Ernie Reisinger. And if you want a copy, I'll, I'll, I know where to get them and I'll get you copies of them. But I want us to understand, this is so important because there are folks out there you're telling you that God broke the law for love, which is a lie. There's folks out there who are telling us that the law doesn't matter to us anymore. It's abolished. It's gone. When Christ clearly says it is not. And we're going we're gonna to, w- like I said, wade through that next, or next time I'm preaching. And we have folks in all these places in between. But I want you to understand this today. Don't worry about the next sermon. Don't worry about, okay, so what laws do I follow? That's next time. What you need to know today is this. You don't follow God's law. You don't. You never have. You never will perfectly. But Christ did. For the believer this morning, I hope that you have been thinking about what is my relationship to God's law, His perfect law that He lays out. And for you, I hope that you will study to discover it. Don't just say, this is too hard. I don't really want to worry about this anymore and move on. It's not too hard. God has revealed these truths to us for us to have. I hope that you consider... This for the Christian again. That your faith in Christ is in a Christ who is the one who fulfills the law. Here's what I mean. Christ doesn't come to make you feel better. Christ doesn't come to make you prosperous. Christ doesn't come to fix the relationships in your life. Christ comes to save you from your sin and everything else good that happens because of that is an outflowing of it, but it's not the reason he came. If anybody tells you anything different, they're giving you another gospel. Christ came, and I hope that for you, you will see that this is the fullness of the gospel, that you cannot keep the law of God, but Christ did. And I hope this will cause you to consider, Christian, what kind of gospel you're presenting to others. Are you presenting a a Jesus who can just make life hunky-dory? If you would just follow him and everything will be good. If you will just follow him, you will finally have the life you've always wanted. If you will just follow him, whatever. If you're giving people another gospel other than Christ and him crucified because he needs to die in your place on the cross because you are a lawbreaker, then it's another gospel. Understand that he is fulfilling God's eternal law. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you're not a follower of Jesus yet, but that you will be, hopefully, soon. I need you to understand something. Jesus is talking to these Pharisees here. And for a lot of us, we, we, we think about Pharisees as being those folks who are just uber-religious, right? And they are. There are people here who are followers of Jesus who are struggling with being a Pharisee, who are adding things that are not in God's Word to what you think people should do. You know, they're going to say, can you believe that person did this? And if we were to hear you, you'd say, well, why do you care if they're doing that or not? Where God's law say they shouldn't. That's being a Pharisee. but don't you understand something? We, 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 we get on religious people all the time for being Pharisees. But don't you understand something? Being a Pharisee isn't about, about being strictly and traditionally religious. It's not. It's having a strong moral code of whatever origin. You understand whatever origin. And for you, you don't have to have a religious moral code to have a moral code that you're saying, "I'm good because I'm sticking to this." Whatever it is that you think will make you righteous through your strict adherence to it, that is making you a Pharisee of that thing. If you're a person who feels self-righteous because you always put the cart back in the corral, and you can't stand people who don't, and that's me, you can pray for me for that. I just, like, you know, just put your cart in the corral. That's extra, okay? Put your cart in the corral at the store, okay? Um, But you find righteousness in that? You're being a Pharisee in a small way. If you're someone who has a strict moral code where you say, I'm always giving money to people to help them out, and you're finding your righteousness and self-fulfillment in that, you're being a Pharisee. You're saying, this is my moral code and I'm sticking to it and this what makes me righteous. If there are ideas maybe of social justice and you say, you know what, I never let anybody get away with saying this or saying that that I think is inappropriate and that makes me feel good, That makes me feel right, because I'm never letting anybody get away with any of that nonsense. You're being a Pharisee. Whatever it is. What is your code that you follow? That you say, because I do this, I am made right. Jesus says, I tell you, this is verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, if you want to go that path where you say, These are the things I do to make me right, to make me feel good, to make me feel like I'm doing the right thing and I'm a good moral person, you need to understand something. You have to take on the champs. You have to take on the champs of self righteousness. And your morality and your righteousness has to exceed those. And if it doesn't, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way for that to happen. Only one way. And that's by trusting in Christ who gives you His own righteousness. Your righteousness will never do it. Only His, given to you. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That's why you can't do it, because you're weakened by your flesh that you live in. It couldn't do it. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The only way that you are made righteous is through Jesus. I know I've said it once, probably a dozen times, so I've got to say it again. That is the only way. By trusting in Him and what He has done. Romans nine thirty and 32 this is our last verse, and then we will be calling it a day. It says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. The law is something that will never, ever Save you. You can come in here today if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you've not been a church person, and you can say, I want to get my stuff together, I want to get my life together. So I'm going to start coming to church, right? And say, I'm going to start coming to church. That's good. I want you to be here to hear the gospel. What you're not going to hear from me is that being here is what's going to make you right before God. I hope that you come here and you hear as we talk about God's law that you need to quit doing whatever it is that you're doing to break His law, to break His moral commands. Lying in your business dealings. Committing adultery through lust and even maybe affairs. Coveting what other people have. Not honoring the Lord's day and making it holy. Whatever it is. I hope you see those things and say, you know what? I need to do these things. I hope you understand something. That you will never be made righteous that way. He says that the Jewish people tried to do that for thousands of years because they wanted to pursue it not by faith, but as if it were based on works. And what they did is they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is Jesus. Only him. Only his righteousness and only his obedience applied to you will make you fit for heaven. You can't succeed in reaching this law. For some of you, as we talk about the law, this is actually going to... um, For some folks, they hear the teaching about the law, and they say, I can't do this, and this makes me upset, and I'm not going to listen to it. For some folks, they hear, okay, give me more things to do, and we, we get excited about it. Don't let that be your attitude. You cannot succeed in reaching the standard of the law, because it's not based on works. Please, don't stumble over the stone that is Christ. Let's pray. Lord. We thank you for this truth that Christ fulfilled the law. That he didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to unhitch from it. He didn't come to break it. He came to fulfill it. Help us see your law rightly, Lord, as as we dive into this more over time. To understand what does it mean for us and how should we live now in light of your word and your law. But Lord, today... May we hear and understand that we cannot achieve it by works. We can't achieve righteousness. We can't please you. The only thing we can do is to cast ourselves at the foot of the cross. We're the only one who ever fulfilled the law, died. the believer, Lord, may we ever be turning back our minds to you. May you give us hearts to desire to do your law, not to achieve righteousness in us, but because of the righteousness you have given us. And Lord, for the one who's here this morning, who doesn't know you, and who's been trying to do things their own way, Lord, would you create in them a desire for the holiness of your standard and your law, but would you help them to understand that they can never be achieved apart from Jesus? May he not be a stumbling stone for them today. But may he be the rock that they stand on and put their faith in. We love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing here in just a moment, but you're welcome to come to the front and talk to me about what it means. What is your relationship to God now? What does it mean to follow him? What has he fulfilled for you? Or how are you trying to make yourself righteous? So you can come to the front and pray. You can come and speak to me. Um, That time is open now as we are singing. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation.